Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Welcome to the national championship game. I hope you had North Carolina over the weekend because that was one hell of an upset. If you're wanting to bet on the national championship game, you need to check out BetOnline's exclusive offer to all new members. You can get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit by using our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, when you sign up. BetOnline, where the game starts. Oh yeah, everybody. You know what that music means. It's time for another fantabulous episode of the memes of the weekend here on the Take It Easy podcast here on a wonderful April 4th, 2022 which is the date according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in whenever you may be listening. We are going to talk about North Carolina and Duke a whole lot here on the podcast. I know there was another semifinal game. Didn't watch it. Why? Because I've learned that if you have other pressing needs, and I'm not saying this is for everyone, especially an avid sports fan as myself, but if you have other pressing needs... You can skip the first 35 minutes of a Final Four, Elite Eight, National Championship basketball game and just watch the last five minutes and pretty much get the only important parts of the game. Now, for Kansas and Villanova, it was a blowout from start to finish. So I skipped the first 35 minutes and then I skipped the last five minutes. But Duke Carolina was the stake in storyline. We advertised it last week as the end of an era. In college basketball, the end of college basketball as we know it. And it delivered. So we're going to talk a lot about that because it's so fucking funny what happened to Coach K. Pardon my French there, but it's so necessary to talk about how funny the end of the Duke run is. So we'll get to that right now, actually. We're going to talk a lot about that here on this episode. And we have our now weekly Jimmy Garoppolo purgatory update. And Dan Snyder is back on his BS. So we're going to talk about that in a minute and uh, other stuff here on the podcast. But Duke Carolina, let's just go right into the Duke Carolina. First of all, let's go right to the end of the game and then go backwards about two minutes. So when it was a one-point game between Carolina and Duke, it was Carolina by one, there was 46 seconds on the clock, and there was a 30-second shot clock. So this was the missed free throw by the Duke player that would have tied the game. The free throw would have tied the game. I forgot the name of the Duke player, which is the good part about messing up as badly as you did in college basketball, is that we won't remember your name. We'll remember that as your worst moment, but we just won't remember your name. Good thing about having faceless athletes in college basketball who were just rooting for laundry instead of the actual players. So Duke player misses a free throw, and North Carolina has the ball up one, 46 seconds to go. And I'm explaining as this is going on. So I'm doing the the calculation in my head. So Carolina can hold the ball down to about 16 seconds and they can take a shot and they can 
get the lead or they can expand the lead and Duke at the same time Duke gets a stop they're going to get one chance to win the game but it's a one point game so those aren't great odds and as I'm explaining all this stuff in my head which is usually what happens when you're like watching basketball or watching football or watching baseball or watching soccer where there's downtime between action which in this case it seemed like there was going to be downtime because North Carolina was going to use all 30 seconds of the shot clock When there's downtime, you can play out the scenarios in your head about what you're about to see. And as I'm playing out the scenarios in my head, Caleb Love just steps up to the three-point line and just fires away 14 seconds on the shot clock. Just straight fires away a three-pointer. I'm like, oh my god. He's shooting a three up one and they didn't even waste time on the shot clock. And he buried that three-pointer that it wasn't quite a dagger because Duke went right back down and got a quick layup because North Carolina was basically in the don't foul mode and that shot was the most tremendo cojones shot I have seen in March Madness in a while and obviously we saw last year live the Jalen Suggs buzzer beater against UCLA still the coolest moment I've ever seen that shot still does not compare to the shot that was buried by Caleb Love in terms of just the straight cojones. Because as much skill as a half-court shot takes, Jalen Suggs was like falling forward and throwing it off the bank to win that game. This was, I'm not going to do the analytically smart thing. I'm not going to waste time on the clock. I'm going to go right into the shot and I'm just going to bury a tremendo cojones three and that's it. Like, that is the end of Coach K. That is just cold-blooded Damian Lillard dagger by our guy Caleb Love. And he's our guy because in the Sweet 16 against UCLA, he had 27 points in the second half to beat UCLA and, like, two of those tremendo cojones shots. And I have to say, if there's one name I'm going to remember from this tournament, win or lose— Gonna be Caleb Love. Didn't really know very many people going into the tournament. Gonna remember Caleb Love. Because that dude is just hitting dagger after dagger after dagger for the Cinderella story North Carolina team. Because this reminded me a lot of the, the semifinal from last year with UCLA and Gonzaga. And I know I talk about college basketball in the context of 2021. It was the middle of the pandemic. We got really, really into college basketball went to the final four like we got really deep in the weeds with college basketball last year but it was cinderella ucla coming out of the same region as north carolina which is the the bottom left one and you had duke who was clearly a favorite against north carolina and ucla and north carolina 2021 ucla and 2022 north carolina underseeded based on their skill level but not in terms of their performance on the season and so They both make Cinderella runs, even though they're traditional blue bloods and all of that stuff. And North Carolina this year gets to have the shot that UCLA didn't have to beat Gonzaga and possibly go to the national championship and lose to Baylor like North Carolina might do today against Kansas. Which again, weird that Kansas is in the championship, but shout out Bill Self. He's going to get his second championship, maybe. Or Hubert Davis is going to win one as a Cinderella darling North Carolina team. That's a new new, uh, new suit for North Carolina, is being Cinderella darlings who destroy their rivals' entire lives. Because Duke Carolina, like, 
I talked about this a couple, or I talked about this last Monday, actually, in the lead up to the Duke Carolina game, which was this series might never be what it once was because Duke and Carolina might never be as good as they once were or matter that much in that sport the way they once did. I don't know what the next evolution of college basketball is going to be. Hopefully it leads to players getting paid by the universities and negotiating with collective bargaining on revenue sharing for athletes, and we actually make it a minor league sport instead of the the shield of amateurism that helps protect the white people in positions of power while the black labor doesn't get compensated properly. Hopefully that's the next step of college basketball, but practically versus ideally the practical reality is that the ncaa is going to fight that tooth and nail and evolution is going to work within the margins of a lot of this stuff it's going to work with evolution works within the margins of the ideal and so what we're looking at in the case of north carolina and duke is that that rivalry as much as it is the premier rivalry of that sport and it will always draw attention and it will always draw two thousand dollar tickets at cameron indoor every single year even if it's still that meaningful of a rivalry to some and to a certain region of the country i'm not sure it's going to matter in the way it did when it was dean smith and mike shashevsky when it was roy williams and mike shashevsky now when it's hubert davis and mike shashevsky for one weird season i don't think it's going to matter in that way anymore where duke wins five national championships in 40 years and makes 14 final fours North Carolina wins four national championships and makes 10 or 11 final fours because I just, and this would be, I think the fifth championship for Carolina, but it just, I don't think it's going to matter in that way because I don't think Duke and Carolina are going to be relevant in the sport the way they once were. And maybe they still will be just because they still spend a lot of money on basketball. Like they're the programs like Kentucky, like uh, say, who's another basketball school? UCLA to a certain extent, Villanova, um, who are the other blue blood basketball? I mean, Gonzaga, weirdly enough, but those schools really care about basketball. And so they'll still spend the resources on basketball. College basketball is so random that I don't think money alone, especially in a sport where people aren't investing the same amounts of money they are in football, I don't think college basketball is a sport where you can see that reciprocation just based on money alone. Because it's really weird that Duke became the powerhouse that it did. It was really weird that North Carolina became the powerhouse that it did under Roy Williams. They just happened to get a really, really good coach. Kansas was willing to spend the money to get Bill Self. Bob Huggins is going into the Hall of Fame, and he did it at West Virginia, even though they didn't win a championship. Still a Hall of Fame coach. It's really, really difficult to figure that out and maybe duke and carolina will always have that prestige i just don't think those schools are going to matter in the way that they have when it's hall of fame coach roy williams and hall of fame coach mike shashevsky because one the system is changing right in front of our eyes and two i think the coach makes the program more than the program makes the coach in a lot of these cases And so it's just really hard to find Hall of Fame coaches. Sure, Kansas found one in Bill Self, and Kentucky found one in John Calipari. And yes, those jobs were desirable, but it took a long time for them to get to that place. And I just don't think in the 2020s that that's going to carry the same level of weight. So all of that to say, this felt like the end of an era. And we can just put a book on the era right there. If I'm North Carolina, I am canceling the rivalry, and I'm just saying... 
we're good. Because there's nothing left for North Carolina to top. Yeah, they win the championship this year. They care more about that one than winning the championship. And it's really, really funny that they ruin Coach K's final home game and they get to knock him out in the final four on their way to a championship. Because basically what you're talking about there is every rivalries and every per team who's or every person who's like deeply invested in a rivalry, that's the greatest dream in the world. If you genuinely hate people who are rooting just because they root for the other team, if it's, you know, Ohio State, Michigan, if it's Yankees, Red Sox, or whatever 1980s and 1970s cliche rivalry you want to put in there. Like, back when rivalries meant something, we just hate, or white people, when people just hated people just for rooting for another team. If that's really, really what matters in that way, you've just won for all of time. That is the ultimate end point. For North Carolina, you don't have to like the debate is part of what makes the rivalry fun sometimes is that there's never a clear answer. This is the closest you're ever going to get to a clear answer. The same way Ohio State and Michigan is as close as you're going to get to a clear answer when Ohio State is just willing to spend exorbitant amounts of money and then it becomes a big brother, little brother rivalry. That's the that's the checkmate for North Carolina. In Coach K's last season, you won his final home game when you were a massive underdog and you won in the in the final four in your first meeting in the final four ever. And you were a massive underdog. It's the most perfect ending possible for North Carolina if this be the end of the era. I don't know why I sounded like a pirate there. If this be the end of the era for Duke and Carolina, because I, I genuinely, I mean, again, I'm just betting probabilities here. Probabilities are the programs aren't going to matter with Schaefer and Hubert Davis the way they did with uh, Roy Williams and with Mike Krzyzewski. And the argument can be made, well, Hubert Davis might win a national championship in his first year. One, he was appointed head coach in April. These are Roy Williams players. Two, why are we going to pretend like everyone saw North Carolina doing this? They are the closest thing to a Cinderella as Butler was a Cinderella team. They just happen to be more talented than an eight seed. And I'm still like looking at my bracket. I'm still hitting myself that I didn't see the North Carolina thing coming because no one believed in Baylor. They got to play St. Peter's in the elite eight. Marquette had Shaka smart, but it's Marquette. Like, I'm hitting myself that I didn't see North Carolina being a team that could at least go to the Sweet 16 instead of having them lose in the first round of the tournament because I just wanted to believe that Duke and Carolina as a rivalry was dying and I didn't watch any college basketball this year. So, you know, if I had watched college basketball better, maybe I would have only gotten Kansas and Villanova as my Final Four correct and picked Kansas to win instead of picking Villanova to win. But I didn't know Justin Moore was going to get hurt. But still, without watching any college basketball, I picked Villanova and Kansas to play in the Final Four. I would just like to point that out for all of the viewing audience. I got that exactly correct. So in the case of Duke Carolina, again, that's a checkmate. And it's so funny that that's how it ends for Coach K. Only because it's easy to not like Coach K. If you want to not like Coach K, there are a lot of ways 
to not like Coach K. You can talk about the way he conducted himself in the 80s and 90s where he was selling Duke as a great white hope. Or you could talk about him as the Team USA basketball coach. Or him, you know, getting into one and done and being a hypocrite and just being not likable. And you can find reasons to hate Coach K the same way we find reasons to hate Tom Brady, the same way we find reasons to hate Bill Belichick, the same reason we find ways to hate any great athlete LeBron James, Kevin Durant, the same way we find any way to hate greatness. You can find a lot of easy ways to hate Coach K. And if you find the easy ways to hate Coach K, then you can just eat all of this up because this is the most you're ever going to see someone take that L. Because if Coach K walks away the same way Roy Williams does last year, Coach K doesn't get to have that be the punctuation ending. It's not the first thing we're going to mention when we talk about Coach K, but you better be damn sure it's the first thing North Carolina is going to mention. And that hurts if you invest emotionally in this rivalry. It's going to hurt when someone that you put a lot of your emotional, or at least some portion of your emotional stability into disliking gets to hold that over you, it's going to hurt. Most of us as sports fans know exactly what that feels like. For me, it's Tom Brady. For others, it might be a rival. When they get to hold something over you, it hurts. But we volunteer the possibility of that hurt by investing in the rivalry. Because sports is the one environment where you can pay and you can invest emotionally. You can pay with your time, money, and emotions to feel pain, to feel disappointment, to spend money to actively feel shitty. But that's what we sign up for in sports. It's like gambling. Why do you think gambling and cryptocurrencies and NFTs advertise so much to sports? It's that addictive tendency of we are betting our emotional stability on results like this. And if you're North Carolina or if you're Duke, it's never going to get better than that because I can't think of a scenario that feels better than that if you're in a rivalry. I've tried conjuring it up over the past 20 years of my lifetime. What is a moment across all sports I can think of that reflects in that? It can be every time Boston beats the Yankees. The closest example I can think of is the Red Sox in 2004 coming back from down... 3-0, first team ever to come back from down 3-0 to beat the Yankees in the ALCS and then break the Billy Goat curse. Or I'm sorry, not the Billy Goat curse, the, the curse of the Bambino. Billy Goat curse was the Cubs. That's the closest thing that you can find anywhere in sports to that because of what the rivalry means historically because generations of people emotionally invested in that rivalry and then passed that down to their children they pass the emotional torment and the gamble down to their children and all the torment that Boston had to go through. And it was all worth it in the end. And it's all worth it for North Carolina. I saw the stat going into the game. Juju Talk Sports mentioned it that Duke held the rivalry over North Carolina 50 to 48 in Coach K's tenure at Duke. And I was confused by that because I'm like, Duke has been this pri- this dominant program over years and years and years. And then I remembered when Coach K first got to Duke, Duke was not a very good program. Between 1980 and 1986, they were okay. They made the tournament every couple of years, 
but they were like the fourth best team in the ACC and the fourth best team in their state. So it was only in 1986 and then into Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley and Grant Hill that Duke actually became the powerhouse program. If you take away the victories between 1980 and 1986, in Coach K's first five years at Duke, North Carolina, and these were the Michael Jordan North Carolina teams with Dean Smith and all that, they went 8-2 and two against Duke. So if you take out those years, Duke ended up going 48-40 and 40 over 30-plus years against North Carolina. North Carolina has been a dominant program across college basketball in a universe that Duke does not exist. Because Duke has always been able to hold that over North Carolina. And for the first time... North Carolina, not quite the the torment of the Boston Red Sox. They get to hold that one over Duke forever. Duke did not get the ending that they wanted or thought they deserved or whatever you get in between. And North Carolina gets to hold that over them forever. Forever. And in uh, in, in Boston versus the Yankees, Boston became the evil empire over the Yankees. And now the Yankees are emotionally investing in torment year after year after year. 2018, they lose 17-2 to to the Red Sox. They lose to the Astros in 2015, the Astros in 2017, the Astros in 2019. They lose to Boston in 2021 in the wild card game. 2018 to Boston. They lose to the Rays in 2020. They lose to the Tigers in 2012 and 2013. They have to be the ones that emotionally invest in pain. And that might be the flip for Duke Carolina. I think the rivalry is just not going to matter the way it once did. The same way Yankees-Red Sox doesn't matter the way it once did. It still matters, but it doesn't matter the way it did back in the the 20th century. The same way Duke and Carolina isn't going to matter when North Carolina is a four-time national champion program over the past 40 years. And they still can't stack up to their biggest rival because Duke is Five national championships, 14 Final Fours, three different regimes of the greatest college basketball teams any of us have ever seen. And now North Carolina gets to hold that one forever. But you get to feel the most exorbitant amount of pain. From the investment of a fan base, you get to experience that pain on an unprecedented level. Because it was your coach's last season. Our coach retired the same year, and he walked away and gave the team over to Hubert Davis, and look what Hubert Davis did with them. As a Cinderella team, look what he did. And Roy Williams gets to be the guy getting memed in the crowd with his team going to the Final Four, and he gets to hold that over Coach K, and Duke gets, I mean, North Carolina gets to hold that over Coach K forever. And I just don't think it's ever going to feel that good again. Because... Again, what is the precedent? That level of storylines, that level of stakes in a rivalry that matters that way. Like, what is the second biggest college basketball rivalry? What is the second biggest behind that? That's the one that invests the stakes in storylines. That's the one that sells the $2,000 tickets. And because of that, the stakes get larger because North Carolina and Duke doubled down on investing emotionally in that rivalry. And North Carolina gets that one forever. You get that one for the rest of time. 
that one moment you can point to and say, we took something you really, really wanted and we retired your coach. We retired your legendary coach with no business ever being North Carolina at basketball. We retired your beloved great white hope. And I just don't think it's ever going to feel better than that. So congratulations, North Carolina. You get to be Red Sox in 2003 or 2004, holding that over Duke for the next 20 years of a rivalry that if odds are to bet, I would say probably does not matter the way it once did. But go for national championship number five in the same time that Coach K won five national titles with Duke. That way, you can be even on the playing field by the time Coach K's career ends. Which is weird that the two greatest programs in all of college basketball happen to come from the same place. And North Carolina was kind of lucky. Roy Williams, maybe the greatest coach not named Coach K in the history of college basketball, wins a national championship at Kansas and then just happens to be born in North Carolina and coached under Dean Smith and happens to go back to North Carolina and win two more national championships there. Pretty cool. And Hall of Fame coaches retire, enter Hubert Davis and John Schaefer, which maybe you believe both of them will be Hall of Fame coaches. Odds are not great, but they could be. North Carolina fans were talking about firing Hubert Davis about mm, four months ago just so they could hire the biggest, splashiest name that was available. And uh, I just don't think they're going to be able to do that because Roy Williams was an anomaly across college basketball history. I don't think you're going to be able to replicate that same magic, no matter how much money and prestige you have. Same thing with Duke. If Schaefer works out, amazing odds. Amazing odds on working out. All the other Coach K assistants don't work out in the same way. I'd be proven wrong about the coach makes the program instead of the program makes the coach. There are some exceptions, but altogether, I think the coach makes the program more than the program makes the coach in college basketball. And altogether, the players make the program more than the coach makes the program. But still, it just doesn't feel the same way for college basketball. And I don't think Duke and Carolina are ever going to matter this way again. And to end the rivalry, which we said last week, the end of college basketball as you know it, ends with North Carolina getting to just give the ultimate middle finger to Duke. Garoppolo drops back to throw. You're gonna lose the game. The seasons come and seasons go. The Niners need a change. If you don't throw check downs, you're gonna take a sack. Jimmy G is warming up. Yeah, he's your quarterback. No, don't throw it. Interceptions drive us all insane. Phones are calling. Ron Rivera wants to make a trade. If a rookie QB isn't in your plans, just call San Francisco up. They got your quarterback. 
They say he's smart and he wins games. That don't mean a thing. If since week one, Trey Lance had played, the 49ers would have had a ring. If your team's rebuilding talent's what you lack, trade two picks for Jimmy G. Now he's your quarterback. All right, so we decided last week that every single week until he gets traded or until we get bored, we are going to update you on the nature of the Jimmy Garoppolo purgatory situation because I find it so incredibly funny that the San Francisco 49ers last season traded three first-round picks to get Trey Lance and then decided that we they were going to play the guy whom they drafted Trey Lance to replace, even though Jimmy Garoppolo is, as we discussed last week, basically the Sam Bradford line, which is, if your quarterback is better than Jimmy Garoppolo, you can talk yourself into having a franchise quarterback. If your quarterback is worse than Jimmy Garoppolo, you're looking for a new quarterback option. And so not only are the 49ers in Jimmy Garoppolo purgatory of whether they keep or get rid of Jimmy Garoppolo, now they're in the purgatory of they can't even trade Jimmy Garoppolo because every team has either filled their quarterbacking role or are waiting until the draft to fill said quarterback role. So no new developments in the Jimmy Garoppolo case. Just want to point out how funny it is that the 49ers are now stuck with $26 million of Jimmy Garoppolo. So let's move on to Daniel Snyder, because Daniel Snyder, as we mentioned off the top of this podcast, is back on his bullshit. This is the report from Front Office Sports that dropped on Friday. The Washington Commanders, a.k.a. the Washington football team, a.k.a. the Washington racial slurs, allegedly held back visiting NFL teams' ticket revenue. Information about alleged ticket scheme was given to a congressional committee investigating the team, according to sources. Teams are required to pass along 40% of net ticket revenues to the NFL, which disperses the funds equally among the 32 teams. Here is the full report from A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports. This came out yesterday, actually. I said it was Friday. It came out on Saturday. I'm recording this Sunday night. The House Oversight Committee, the House of Representatives of the United States, that would be, I should mention, the United States House of Representatives Oversight Committee received information that alleges the Washington Commanders, a.k.a. the Washington Racial Slurs, kept ticket revenue that is supposed to be shared with other NFL teams, sources told Front Office Sports. According to NFL bylaws, all teams are required to pass along 40% of ticket sales from each home game, minus ticket handling charges and taxes, to the league, which then disperses the funds to visiting teams. At least one person gave the information in recent weeks to congressional investigators that alleges the commanders didn't pass along the full 40%. Two sources with knowledge of the investigation told Front Office Sports. It's not clear how long this alleged scheme ran for or who authorized it. The commanders and the NFL learned about the allegations in recent weeks, one source told Front Office Sports. 
An NFL spokesperson declined comment when reached by Front Office Sports. The commanders did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Front Office Sports reported Thursday the House Oversight Committee had expanded its investigation beyond allegations that the commanders, a.k.a. the racial slurs, fostered a hostile workplace environment to include an examination of the finances of the team and owner Dan Snyder. Sources told Front Office Sports that the person who gave the information to the Democrat-led Oversight Committee was the one referenced in the following statement by the GOP Oversight Spokesperson Austin Hacker. The leak of one-sided, unconfirmed, unsupported allegations from a disgruntled ex-employee with an axe to grind is further proof the Democrats' investigation is a waste of Congress's time. Nothing the committee has heard from any nothing the committee has heard from any credible witness points to any financial improper improprietaries. In fact, the only credible witness in a position to know the facts the Democrats have heard from has denied any such improperties. Improprieties. Apologies. Source with knowledge of the information given to the Oversight Committee staffers told Front Office Sports it went beyond first-person testimony. Ticket sales are only a part of local revenue that have to be shared among NFL owners. Teams don't share other revenues, from parking to local sponsorship deals, with other teams. Ticket sales not only impact other teams, but also the players, since ticket revenue is factored into overall league revenues that are used to come up with each year's salary cap. The 2022 season salary cap is $208.2 million, a $25.7 million increase. The cap dipped for the first time last season since it was implemented in 1994, largely due to the pandemic that limited fan attendance during the 2020 season. The Green Bay Packers, the only publicly owned team in the NFL, took in $77 million in ticket sales in 2017, the most recent data available for a season not impacted by the pandemic. The Commanders reported the second lowest attendance last season. Quote, my understanding is the early returns of ticket sales are going very well in Washington. Roger Goodell told reporters at the owners meeting on Tuesday, they're making progress. We are very optimistic going into the season. And so we find ourselves in an interesting position where in the same month to two month time period where six new allegations of sexual harassment were levied against one Daniel Snyder and at the same time where this oversight committee has been looking into the toxic workplace around the Washington football team that we have detailed here and with reporting in the Washington Post for much of the past two years this might be the thing that impacts Dan Snyder the same way that the impacts to Dan Snyder came with the change of the team name, not from the toxic workplace investigation, but from pressure during the summer of George Floyd from corporate sponsors to change the name of the Washington racial slurs, which is why I still call them the Washington racial slurs, is because Daniel Snyder did not have a change of heart. He only did it because corporate sponsors told him to change the name of his team. And until Dan Snyder is either removed or sells the team, they will still be referred to as the Washington racial slurs. The more horrific situation is the real human victims in this situation. And yes, there are victims in a tax scheme by Daniel Snyder to ch- to keep ticket revenue and not share it with other owners. Yes, this trickles down to players, and yes, this ends up impacting more people, but because this allegation now begins to impact the financial bottom line of the Washington football team and the financial bottom line of the other NFL owners, 
the NFL owners, who are the only allies left to Daniel Snyder, other than people within the Washington organization who are incredibly loyal to him with less power than him, the people in the position of power who are protecting Dan Snyder are probably going to swing a little bit in the opposite direction coming off of this story because now we have a scandal that not just impacts the financial bottom line of the NFL, but one in which the NFL, similar to the gambling situation with Calvin Ridley, needs to set a precedent with Daniel Snyder because the alternative is, one, other owners also hog revenue, which is going to create internal fighting between NFL owners, but also kind of fraud. Dan Snyder kind of committed fraud in this situation by keeping multiple books. And yes, you can call it smart bookkeeping as well. And I'm sure that's what Dan Snyder will articulate in court. But he kind of defrauded the NFL in a certain weird way in this place. And I know that that's not as, I mean, it shouldn't be morally defrauding the NFL probably morally shouldn't be as bad as sexual harassment and sexual assault within the workplace and toxic workplace environment. Depends where you draw your moral and ethical line in that situation, but if you're the NFL and you are a corporation, the almighty dollar is the thing that is going to get Dan Snyder out of there. And what's really interesting about all of this is that if this is a scandal that is enough to switch people inside the NFL offices to push back against Dan Snyder, it might make it easier for them to remove him. Because when we talk about the Donald Sterling situation, which we talk about the precedent for an owner being removed, or Jerry Richardson quietly being removed as owner of the Carolina Panthers because he had a whole lot of Me Too stuff in his past that the NFL didn't want coming to light, and so they kind of just moved off of him pretty quickly. You see that Dan Snyder is very much not a good Dan Snyder is not someone who seems to be well liked in league offices and, and you know power structures in the NFL and this weird boys club of billionaires Dan Snyder doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot for the NFL other than making a whole lot of money and spending a whole lot of money and the NFL's afraid of pushing him out because of the possibility of him airing other people's dirty laundry in a lawsuit against the NFL. Because uh, Donald Sterling went relatively quietly. Jerry Richardson went relatively relatively quietly. There is not much of a sign that Dan Snyder will go relatively quietly if the NFL takes steps to remove him as owner. If we have a possible fraud situation, or at least a fraud situation that the NFL can argue in court might end up being a situation that pushes Daniel Snyder out, or at least gives the NFL owners the backdrop to move Daniel Snyder out. And I know that's messed up. Like, if we're talking about the moral right thing and the moral practic- uh, the practical morals and the, uh, you know, the, the ideals, it, this would not be the ideal situation, that it took financial fraud <laughs> to move Daniel Snyder out of the NFL and not all of the gross stuff about sexual harassment in the workplace, not just by him, but also by people all across the organization that got multiple people fired in this situation that lead to NFL investigations and congressional investigations and soon-to-be books by Robert Griffin III and all kind of like the former team the the former team broadcaster resigning in disgrace and multiple members of the front office and John Gruden and Bruce Allen going down like all of the gross stuff 
around the Washington football team wasn't enough to push Dan Snyder over the edge, but it was a tipping point that ultimately leads to the possible financial fraud that, in reality, the NFL can just change the revenue-sharing rules. I don't think that's going to happen, though, because it benefits teams that don't get the same types of ticket revenue to do revenue-sharing, where smaller market, quote-unquote, teams, in terms of that gate revenue can collect an equal share, and as that's why it exists, is because it benefits smaller market teams, and there's more smaller market teams than bigger market teams in the NFL who collect money in a socialistic way from the other billionaires. Socialism for the rich, right? Um, one thing that's interesting about this situation is that if you're not going to change the rules, then there's definitely pressure to push Dan Snyder out, and the Dan Snyder's only call for recourse is through bullying in the court system and taking the NFL to court, which will maybe lead to a settlement. The NFL has all the incentive in the world to settle. But if you're Dan Snyder, it all depends on how practically you can get away with this situation because it seems like he really, really loves owning that football team. That racial slur, disgrace of a football team that could be disbanded in an idealized world. He really, really likes running that team however the bleep he wants, no matter how toxic, no matter how inconsiderate, and no matter how poorly, not just financially, humanly, morally, ethically, legally, he and shitty product on the field that he does is one of four teams that hasn't made a conference champ or hasn't made a Super Bowl in the NFC in the last 20 years and one of two franchises with the Dallas Cowboys or one of three sorry the Dallas Cowboys the Detroit Lions and them who haven't even made a conference championship in the last 20 years you're seeing how gross all of that can be and the fact that it's going to take financial fraud to push him out the door. Like, as poorly as it's all gone, he really, really loves running that team. And it looks like he's willing to go down fighting on owning that team and being able to pass it on generations later with shitty football, but still making billions upon billions of dollars in revenue because there is no course for... You know, there are no consequences. There is no relegation. There is no revenue dips. Revenue sharing is actually a way that Washington continues to make tons of money, despite the fact the team has been mismanaged across years. And yet, there is no recourse for one Daniel Snyder, who is going to continue to run the Washington football team, unless this is the thing that pushes him out the door. Gross although it might get the desired result we want. So hopefully the congressional investigation passes that information along to the NFL that says, hey, Dan Snyder was kind of fudging the numbers a little bit. And that's probably one that similarly the NFL needs to set the precedent so that other owners don't do that as long as they want to continue that revenue sharing model, which I assume most teams want to because it takes money from the people who make the most and distributes it to league partners. I assume if you're in the bottom two-thirds of revenue in terms of like gate revenue in the NFL, it would be financially beneficial for you to keep up the revenue sharing system. It's why baseball has that system. It's why the NBA has that system. Maybe the NFL gets rid of it altogether as a way to protect Dan Snyder, and that would be a hell of a decision to break down their revenue-sharing structure just to protect Dan Snyder. But if they did that, like in this weird world where they decide we're going to change our revenue-sharing structure, 
it'd probably be because a whole lot of teams are also lying about their numbers. And that would be a massive, massive scandal if we found out that the numbers were being fudged in such a way. But the easiest way for the NFL to keep it up would be to just cut off Dan Snyder and make him the scapegoat to threaten other owners to not pull off something like this with their league partners. And that would be really shocking if that's the way Dan Snyder goes out. But hey, we get the desired result we want, right? Hopefully this ends up being true. Hopefully the House Oversight Committee finds this information to be true. Just because it would be the the straw that breaks the camel's back that would finally possibly push Dan Snyder out the door. And it's not the ideal way we wanted it. We would have hoped that they have a heart to, you know, say, hey, this person who oversaw sexual harassment, sexual assault in his workplace, a really toxic work environment for women and LGBTQ people and religious minorities and anyone who's not a straight cis white male really didn't have a great experience working in the Washington football organization. And unfortunately, it's going to be financial fraud and affecting the bottom line of NFL owners to set a precedent for future situations of revenue sharing fraud that will be the thing that pushes Dan Snyder out the door. It's really not the ideal situation, although practically it would get the result we wanted, which was accountability for a white billionaire who's really, really, really messed up when it comes to running an organization in a healthy way for its employees and for building successful, you know, place for people to come work and feel safe. Hopefully it would lead to Dan Snyder getting kicked out. I'm not sure it's going to be the case, but this is a step that I, you know, ironically, practically might actually lead to what it would it be like the fourth owner to ever be removed from a professional sports franchise none of them as powerful or as big as Daniel Snyder who is surprisingly one of the richest NFL owners and would definitely go fight his old friends in a court case if he so chose but maybe this is the thing that will get him to leave quietly which is the possibility of financial fraud combined with all of this stuff maybe it will break the camel's back maybe the owners stop protecting dan snyder and roger goodell who is an employee of the owners stops protecting dan snyder and maybe we get to see all the information in the nfl investigation maybe all of that will be the case maybe this is the thing that breaks the camel's back on a two plus year investigation into the washington football team that was basically being run on autopilot for the last two years by the way uh, there was also an interesting report this week that Dan Snyder is running the Washington football team again, which Roger Goodell vehemently denied. So we know that they don't want the impression of Daniel Snyder being around his organization and being around his football team or his racial slurs. Uh, they, there's the impression that they don't want him around, and yet that is exactly what it seems like is happening because Daniel Snyder is quietly returning back to running his team and the NFL is going to enable him to do whatever they want because the alternative is a lawsuit where they'd rather just keep kicking the can down the road, keep kicking the can down the road. Apparently toxic workplace, sexual harassment, all that stuff, not enough to kick him out. But you know what is enough to kick him out? Defrauding the other NFL owners, possibly, allegedly, hopefully. Hopefully it's true because it would be a small sacrifice and damage that's already done in order to kick Dan Snyder out of the NFL and hopefully get another rich white billionaire that maybe runs his team slightly less toxically 
than maybe the most toxic of the NFL owners. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping into the Memes of the Weekend podcast. We are going to have so many fun, fantabulous podcasts all throughout the next week plus. I hope you all enjoy your day. I hope you all enjoy your week. I hope you all enjoy however and whenever it is you may be listening. Take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.